Amen. You may be seated. If you've got your Bible, will you turn with me now to Isaiah chapter 34? This is near the end of our series in this section of Isaiah. A bunch of sermons. We're kind of in the middle of one here. Isaiah 34. It's some pretty dark stuff. Draw near, O nations, to hear and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their host. He's devoted them to destruction, has given them over for slaughter. Their slain will be cast out and the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. All the host of heaven shall rot away and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I've devoted to destruction. The Lord has a sword. It is sated with blood. It is gorged with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra, a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Wild oxen shall fall with them, and young steers with the mighty bulls. Their land shall drink its fill of blood, and their soil shall be gorged with fat. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. And the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch, and her soil into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch. Night and day it shall not be quenched, and its smoke shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. But the hawk and the porcupine shall possess it. The owl and the raven shall dwell in it. He shall stretch the line of confusion over it, the plumb line of emptiness. Its nobles there is no one there to call it a kingdom, and all its princes shall be nothing. Thorns shall grow over its strongholds, nettles and thistles in its fortresses. It shall be the haunt of jackals and abode for ostriches. And wild animals shall meet with hyenas. The wild goat shall cry to his fellow. Indeed, there, shall, there the night bird settles and finds for herself a resting place. There the owl nests and lays and hatches and gathers her young in her shadow. Indeed, there the hawks are gathered, each one with her mate. Seek and read from the book of the Lord. Not one of these shall be missing. None shall be without her mate. For the mouth of the Lord is commanded and his spirit has gathered them. He's cast a lot for them. His hand has portioned it out to them with the line. They shall possess it forever. From generation to generation, they shall dwell in it. This is the word of the Lord. Lead us, Lord, now through this very difficult text we ask in Jesus' good name. Amen. Well, late in 2020, a year which I think by all accounts has been a real challenge for all of us. I think there's a lot of anxiety, a lot of people, including among us as Christians, who really wonder, like, what is actually going on in our world and what is going to happen in our world and what on earth ought to be done about it? And in all of that, that tends to come with times that are in turmoil. Late this year, we've turned to an ancient sermon series preached by Isaiah the prophet in a time of acute social and political crisis As bad as some things have been this year in the United States, I think none of us has ever stared down something as dire as the Assyrian war machine that is now pounding on the gates of Jerusalem in King Hezekiah's time. If you know anything about the Assyrians historically, the ferocity, the barbarity of these people when they overran other nations was just blood-curdling. But Isaiah's preaching in that crisis. Now what jars the modern ear in this sermon series, is Isaiah's insistence that his hearers have made far too much of the crisis and far too little of God. Now that just, I think we need to be honest, that that kind of bounces off the modern ear because 
you know, we're very practical people now. You know, we, we can solve problems, right, in the modern age. And the idea that somehow a crisis is just way too big in our eyes and God has shrunk down very small, that, it's hard to relate to. But that's Isaiah's point, and he really goes after it. The godness of God should be shrinking Assyria down to size, not the other way around. And in exposing that fatal spiritual blindness in King Hezekiah and the other leaders and people of Judah, Isaiah, you'll recall, he he calls them to radical rest, radical rest in God, not allies like Egypt. He calls them to deep spirituality that actually sees earthly powers, even as magnificent as Assyria, sees them as kind of like shadows compared to the reality of God himself. Radical rest, deep spirituality, and then we've also seen he calls Israel to a converted imagination, because we tend to get things upside down so very often. And Isaiah presses the point, no matter how it looks, God is the potter, and all earthly things, including the Assyrians, are mere clay in his hands. And don't turn that upside down, he says. God forms us. We don't form him. God calls us to account as the potter. We don't question his wisdom and call him into account. And this last sermon that Isaiah preaches, it it stretches over chapters 33, 4, and 5. This last sermon really expands that converted imagination. And he says again to Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, he says, despite how things look, and you know, you can still look over the walls of Jerusalem, and there are the, you know, the Urukai, right? There are the Assyrians. Despite how things look, he preached, you heard it last week, God is going to be lifted up, and the Assyrians are going to be brought down in confusion and ruin. That is really going to happen because God is the unshakable Lord. His sovereignty cannot be challenged. It cannot be, it cannot be disturbed. And he, therefore, is the stability of Isaiah's times. Those who trust in him, even in this dark hour, they're going to be firm. They're going to have stability. And apart from him, things are going to go to pieces. But then in the middle of the sermon, here in this chapter 34, there's another really jarring note to our modern ears. And you just heard it. And it's the note of judgment. The potter being the potter. Isaiah goes through this whole chapter and he says, that the potter's going to have a reckoning with the clay vessels that oppose him. A day of reckoning is coming. Now, let's just think about the judgment for a minute. It, this is not a pleasant thing. It, 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 it's, it's hard to hear. But you, you, know, you know what's going on here. From the very first in the Bible, God's authority over the world, his right to rule us, his law for us, it didn't go undisputed, did it? Like, it was just never, like, just going to flow that God rules. There was a challenge from the serpent. There was a challenge from Adam and Eve. And that challenge has continued throughout history. It's going on in 2020. And what Isaiah is saying here, and this actually shows up a lot in the Bible, is that there is coming a time, there is coming a time, despite all the challenges and their sophistication and their violence and their fierceness, and no matter how big they might seem, there is coming a time after God has been very patient, he's been very long-suffering, He has given his reign and his sunshine on the evil and on the good. There is coming a time when God's authority over this world and his ownership of the world and his justice and his law, they are going to be vindicated. That time is coming. Now, the opposition forces that oppose God are symbolized here by Edom. You guys know the other name for Edom? Edom is the name for Esau, Jacob's twin brother. And even... 
Kind of long after the rivalry between Jacob and Esau, Edom has been a nation that has just been weirdly and, um, and with an unrelentingly hostile to, to Israel from the moment that Israel came up to the land of Canaan to possess it. And they asked the Edomites, can we just go through your territory? And like, just all we're asking is some water. We're, we're not going to take anything from you. And the Edomites were just like, no. And they came out with all these forces like to oppose Israel. Like, no, you know, cousins, you absolutely can't come through our land. And, and they were just always really hostile to God and his people all the way up to actually after Isaiah's time, when Jerusalem finally falls to the Babylonians, we're told in in certain places in the Bible that the Edomites were just like shouting in glee over the fall of Jerusalem. So these are, they're like an emblem of people who hate God and they hate his people. And the verdict that Isaiah pronounces over them in verse 2 and verse 5, it's just, it's just a dreadful verdict. We're told that all the nations in verse 2 have been, this is the language, devoted to destruction. In verse 5, the sword of God from heaven is going to fall upon Edom, the Edomites, upon the people. Here it is again. I have devoted to destruction. That's a very particular biblical phrase. This is a different kind of warfare than like wars between nations. When God says, I'm devoting someone to destruction, what that means is God's own eternal wrath is going to fall on this and obliterate it as a kind of fiery religious sacrifice to his justice. There is no mercy. There is no more remnant. It is a consuming fire. It is a visitation in history of the kind of all-consuming, relentless judgment of God that will come at the very last day of history, as we'll see in a minute. But it's a fearful verdict. When God says that nation is under the ban, devoted to destruction, as as the the translation is here, that, that is just a fearful verdict. I've been thinking all week about, you know, kind of modern reactions to this, because I can imagine an assortment of reactions to this in our time. There are a lot of people who would read this chapter and say, you know, this is really primitive stuff. You know, this is from the days when people used to, you know, kind of hate other people, and so they come up with a whole story about how their deity is going to smash those other people, and, you know, it was all very bloodthirsty and gory and awful, and, you know, we've, thank heaven we've outgrown all that silliness, you know, these myths from the past. A lot of people would say that. A lot of people would say this is abhorrent. This is why we talk about the God of the Old Testament being a monster. Other people would say, you know, this is awfully distant. This is the kind of thing, you know, you can hear the, the in some ways, legitimate outcries from activists over the last century who have said, you know, this is the kind of thing that oppressors use to sort of comfort the oppressed. Like, someday you get pie in the sky when you die. Someday God's going to show up and vindicate you. Meanwhile, we can just walk all over you. And, you know, it's so convenient, isn't it, that we can just say, you know, someday, judgment day, when things need to happen now, it's awfully distant. I can imagine any of these reactions. So my question to you, Trinity Saints, is this. Is it possible for you and me to talk about this and to believe in this in the 21st century without embarrassment? And I want to say to you today, yes, it is absolutely possible to believe in this and to speak about this, even in our time, not only without embarrassment, but with confidence, for several reasons, starting with the fact that God's judgment, number one, God's judgment is necessary. God's judgment is actually necessary. What do I mean when I say that? Part of, the, part of the reason I believe in God, you know, my kids are at an age now where they, they ask me why. And I, I love young people because they ask the questions nobody else, everyone else is too embarrassed to ask. How can you believe in God? Well, part of the reason I believe in God is what some writers have called the impossibility of the contrary. 
the impossibility of the contrary. Now, that could sound a little bit self-congratulatory, so let me, let me explain what I mean. I believe, part of why I believe in God is not the only reason, but part of the reason I believe in God is because of the impossibility of the opposite, of the contrary. If you meet any thinking human beings, it doesn't have to be you know, in our culture. In other cultures throughout history, you read about them. If you ever meet a thinking human being, now not all human beings are thinkers. <laughs> a lot of people don't think very deeply at all. But if you meet thinking humans or you engage a, a non-frivolous system of human thought, there are frivolous systems of thought, but if you meet a really non-frivolous, engaged system of human thought, you're going to find that these people and these systems of thought, they're always wrestling with just some really basic problems, problems that never go away, problems that are just always there through time. They cross over cultural boundaries. Problems like, what exactly is it that's wrong with the world? What is wrong with the world? And what, if anything, can be done about it? Can it be fixed, whatever's wrong? And how might we go about fixing it? And these are good questions, and people wrestle with these. And what I find as a Christian is that outside the faith, not just the Christian faith, but just faith in a God with godness, you know, even in other world religions, there, there's, they would agree with me on this. Outside the faith, if you don't believe in God at all, what I find so often is that it's not just that the solutions that are offered to these problems don't make sense. What I find is, in a lot of these other godless approaches, the problems don't even make sense. Let me say that again. It's not, when you get outside of the faith, it's not just that the solutions offered to the basic human problems don't make sense. The very problems, it's hard to make any sense of, the, of them. Justice is an example. You really can't have a, you can't be a thinking person or have a thinking, a system of thought that doesn't wrestle with the problem of justice. How things are to, what is it when things are right, they're the way they're supposed to be, and how do you get them to be that way? And we're raising a whole generation in the 21st century. It's kind of an exciting time because we're raising an entire generation of justice warriors. They're really wound up about justice. Well, as a Christian, here's the biblical framework in which the problem of justice makes all kinds of sense. It's very simple. James says it in one sentence. Here it is. There is only one lawgiver and judge. That's the Christian framework for justice. There is only one lawgiver and judge. And you kind of work everything out from there. There's God. He's the lawgiver and he's the judge. That's your framework for justice. Now, I'm still working on this idea that God's judgment is necessary. That's God's judgment. There is one lawgiver and he is going to judge the living and the dead. That's the biblical framework. Now, if you reject that, my point is that that is necessary, because if you reject that, I want you to think about what your options really are. I can think of three. If, there, if you reject the biblical framework for justice, there's a one lawgiver and judge, one ultimate lawgiver and judge, then here, I think, are your options. One is you could believe that there is no lawgiver and there's no judgment. There are people who believe this. There is no cosmic lawgiver. There are a lot of people who believe this. There is no cosmic lawgiver, and there is no judgment to come. Well, this is where that leaves you. What that means is that people are just doing things that they do on the basis of values that they have, and those values ultimately are unchallengeable, aren't they? You can't challenge people's values if there's no ultimate lawgiver. My values are my values. And so you've got people that are just doing what they do on the basis of values that are unchallengeable. The only exception is you could bring some coercive force to bear upon them to make them act contrary to their values, and that coercive force itself is unchallengeable, isn't it? 
I mean, if a bunch of people get together and say, we're going to make you live not according to your values because we have different values, that's unchallengeable if there's no lawgiver and there's no judgment. You know, when I was reading this week, a guy named Max Horkheimer, he's one of the founders of what is called critical theory, which has been so culturally influential, and he says it this way. Such insight here. He says, when they build a system, theists and atheists, believers in God and those who don't believe in God, they alike, they put an entity at the top. In their system, they put something at the top. The dogma of a nature which can speak and command, or at least serve as a principle for deducing moral truths, was an inadequate attempt to go along with science without giving up the age-old longing for an eternal guideline. But nature could only teach self-preservation and the right of the stronger. Not, for example, liberty and justice. He's exactly right. That's all you've got. People do things according to their values, or you can coerce them because of different values, but all of it's unchallengeable because there's no lawgiver and there's no judgment. Well, people might back away from that, and here's another option. You could say, well, there is a lawgiver. There's just no judgment. There is a way things are supposed to be. There is a way things are supposed to be. It is possible to deviate from how things are supposed to be. But, but God is too nice to judge. And so my counsel to you, if that's your position, is then you should just, you know, God is chill. You should be chill. Because you might decide to be one of these noble people that says, well, you know, I don't just believe that it's all about force. I have ideals. I think that there is a way things are supposed to be, and I live according to how things are supposed to be. Fine, good for you, you virtuous little person. But if you see somebody else who's deciding to live like an absolute rapscallion, they're just like abusing people and oppressing people and acting any way they please. Look, you're all going to the same warm bath of oblivion in the end. So chill the heck out. You could have no lawgiver and no judgment. You could have a lawgiver but no judgment. Or you could weirdly have a judgment with no lawgiver. And this is actually where a lot of people end up. There's going to be a judgment. Now, to be clear, there's no God and there's no lawgiver, but there's going to be a judgment. And what this basically means is we kind of look around, we decide who's good and who's bad, and we decide the judgment is going to correspond with what we think is good or bad, which makes you indistinguishable from the worst kind of religious bigot, those people that make us sick, who just look around and, you know, my people are the good people and those people over there are the bad people and God's going to sort it out according to what we think someday, and you react to that. Well, you're exactly like that if you think that there is a judgment but no lawgiver. God's judgment is necessary, or it's really hard for justice not to become completely meaningless. And I'll go further with this idea that it's necessary. God's judgment isn't just necessary for earthly justice to make sense. God's ultimate judgment is necessary for earthly justice to make any progress. This is what I mean. You need the ultimate judgment of God if you're going to make progress in seeking justice on earth for one simple reason— it is only in light of God's ultimate judgment, listen carefully, that all human judgments on the earth are relativized and challengeable. Do you understand that? What are we doing when we seek justice in this world? We're saying we need to challenge human judgments. Fine, but the reason why human judgments in this world are challengeable is because there's an ultimate judgment. And think about what God's ultimate judgment then enables in this world. It enables a bunch of stuff. It enables humility. It enables me to look around and realize, wow, this is, this is refreshingly you know, healthy. My judgment could be wrong. If God is the ultimate judge, then my judgment could be wrong. And we can have some humility. We can also have patience. 
Because you can say, you know, there are some things that must be left to God's judgment. They really must. There's this utopian demand for all justice right here, right now. And it read, what, what happens with that way of approaching things, that impatient way of approaching things? It's got to be right now. Is you, you don't have the patience then for constructive change. You guys have lived enough history to know real injustice, and there are massive injustices in this world, but they can actually be aggravated by impatient revolution that cannot be patient enough to say, in light of God's ultimate judgment, we're going to patiently work for change. And God will judge. He gives a lot of space to repent. But don't ever mistake God's delay for indifference. Peter tells us in his second letter, God is patient, but he's most certainly not indifferent. You be patient, because he will judge. It's not just a basis, God's ultimate judgment, though, for humility and patience. It's also a basis for resistance. Because all human powers are under the judgment of God. That means we can speak truth fearlessly to power. And we're not just... We're not just screaming our own opinions. We are calling the rulers of this world to account under God, not under us. And we can act justly in this world against injustice because there's a basis for resistance in the judgment of God. And hope, hope not only for my own self, but as I seek justice, all that is not in vain. You know, it can feel so frustrating and futile in this world to seek to do good and overcome evil with good and seek justice. It feels like it's not working, but we have hope because God promises our labor is not in vain and all will be well in the end. You know, Abraham says to God when he's praying for Sodom and Gomorrah, he says, will will the judge of all the earth not do what is right? And you and I need to face that sometimes when we're discouraged. Listen, there are a lot of miscarriages of justice under the sun. You guys live with this all the time. But if God can't straighten it out, then really, what is the hope? If the God who made all things and is the ultimate judge can't get judgment right, then what really is the hope? But we are told because he is the God that he is, that creation, there will be a vindication, and creation, this really strange imagery here, creation will be at rest. And you see that human, the blight of human sin has been erased. It's been, as it were, erased from creation, and what is left is creation is kind of taking over. The hawk and the owl and the ostrich, and God's creation rests from our sin. God's judgment is necessary. But now we have to ask another question, because if the Bible also says that all have sinned. So if God is judge, he is the lawgiver and judge, and his judgment is absolutely necessary for any justice to happen in this world. But here's the frightening thing. Let's now stare that square in the face. God is going to judge. Here's the problem. It isn't just Edom. It's all of us. All have sinned. So here's the question then. Doesn't God's judgment mean that we're all doomed? So I need to say a second thing about God's judgment. It's not just necessary. Secondly, God's judgment is satisfied. God's judgment is satisfied. There's interesting progression in the Bible. You have various historical judgments where God will, you know, he'll destroy a city, he'll destroy a nation sometimes. He'll bring judgments in history, the flood, you think about various things. But all of those are actually kind of like foreshocks of something the Old Testament looks forward to, which is called the Day of the Lord. The Day of the Lord, like the big capital J judgment. The Day of Judgment. There's coming a time when all these foreshocks are going to kind of like erupt into the ultimate thing where God's justice is going to be comprehensively satisfied on the day of the Lord. But, beloved, one of those beautiful things in the New Testament is that it shows us that that day of the Lord has been brought forward now in history, and it actually happened on the cross. 
God took his, we call it eschatological judgment, his last moment, end of history judgment of the living and the dead, and he brought that forward in time and he visited it upon his son, Jesus, as he bore our sins. And what that means is that for those who trust in Jesus, he has been the Lamb of God who died under the stroke of justice in my place. He took all my sins, past, present, future, and he bore the curse for those sins. What that means is, for those who trust in Jesus as their sin bearer, the day of judgment, in any sense that determines your final destiny, it's already passed. You're already through it. God's holy wrath, his righteous wrath upon your sins has been exhausted. By the way, can I just say parenthetically, it is no monstrous God who puts himself under the ban for his enemies. Can we please step back from that silliness in our modern time? And so because God has borne his own judgment himself in the person of his son, the writer of Hebrews says, come boldly. (laughs) Come boldly before God. Your sins have no bearing on your acceptance. Your sins have no bearing on your acceptance. That, by the way, is our witness to the world, too. That God has satisfied his justice. Whatever justice still needs to occur in human courts, and a lot does, none of those human courts gets to decide anyone's eternal fate. Probably a bunch of you remember Rachel Denhollander, that former gymnast who was abused by Dr. Larry Nassar of Michigan State University, and she and a bunch of other gymnasts testified against him in court. You remember her closing statement in court when she she spoke to this man who had sexually abused her and these other girls, and she said to him, basically in so many words, she said, I hope that you receive the full justice of the law and that God enables you to know his mercy through Jesus and have your sins forgiven and to live forever. What a thing to say. This court can't decide your eternal fate. And the witness of the church of Jesus Christ to the world in light of God's judgment is that from God's bench, the invitation to the nations of the world is to come rest in Christ, rest in what Jesus has done. The judgment of God will only fall on those who reject his terms of peace. And God has not left himself without witness in nature and in the church that he is good and he is merciful and he is generous and he is kind and he is patient and he is faithful. You know one of the most interesting things? You guys know the, remember the story of Jericho? The, you know, the, the walls came tumbling down? Jericho was placed under the ban. But it's interesting that that prostitute Rahab in that city who understood that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is God, she was spared from being under the ban. Even for those under the ban, there is mercy if you accept God's terms of peace. God's judgment is necessary. God's judgment is satisfied. But lastly, if God's judgment is satisfied, then here's kind of a twist. So where then does judgment day fit into the lives of those who are resting in Jesus? What then, what what do we expect on judgment day as those who are resting in Jesus? And the final thing I want to say about God's judgment is not just necessary and not just satisfied. God's judgment is liberating. Is liberating. This is what I mean. The Apostle Paul says we must, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. There's coming a day when you're going to walk through the courtroom doors of the Lord of heaven and earth, and you will stand before the God-man, Jesus, and you will be judged. Every word, every thought, every motive, every action, everything that you're doing today, throughout your entire life, it will be out there on the table in that courtroom. 
before the all-knowing eyes of Jesus Christ. And you will be judged, the Bible tells us, by your works. You'll be judged by your works. Now, because Jesus has already taken away your curse, this will be a fatherly judgment. Heaven and hell are not on the line. Eternal damnation or bliss, those are not on the line anymore. That, that happened at the cross. But here you will stand before God, and you will give an account of your works. This is a fatherly judgment. Judged by a God who loves you and who sees the secret things, so there's a kind of, it's sobering. But it's a fatherly judgment. Now, why would I say that something that still, even without you know, having an L on the line, it still seems pretty scary. Why would I say that's liberating? Think about what that, that moment, and as sure as you're sitting here today or out there ever you're sitting on the live stream, as sure as you are where you are, you will one day be in that courtroom. <laughs> I had to appear in a court recently. I was a bad boy, and I did some speeding. Mm. Even as a former lawyer, I hate going into a courtroom. It's just like, you may as well feel, you just feel naked. Why would I say it's liberating? A few things and I'm done. Number one, do you realize that ultimate judgment you are going to face, it frees you from all other appraisals. The Apostle Paul says something very interesting in 1 Corinthians 4. He says, it is actually not a big deal to me whether you judge me or any human court judges me. I don't even judge myself. My judge is God. Like, I'm just not really wound up about other people's verdicts about me. Love me, hate me. I probably have some stuff to learn from you, but you are not my judge. Guess what? I'm not my judge. Because Ben Miller passes a verdict on Ben Miller all the time, and Ben Miller actually is not the ultimate verdict that matters. My judge is God, and I am thereby freed from all other appraisals. Now, I care about how I affect other people. I mean, I care about being a blessing to other people, but it is so liberating in this world to get to a place Man, those of you who are young, get here as soon as possible. The only smile that really matters to you ultimately is God's. And you're just like kind of Teflon about all the peer pressure and everyone, you know, thinking you've got to be this and you've got to be that and, you know, you're nothing if you're not. You just don't really care. God's goals are my goals. I just don't really, if he smiles and I, and I receive the reward from him, I just really don't care about much else. There was another gymnast, Nastia Lucan. Who, I was, one time, she, she won the all-around gold uh, medal for, for individual performance, uh, what, 2008, and, and she, her father was her trainer. And I remember one time listening to an interview with her, and she was 16 at the time, I think, and I've never heard a 16-year-old say this, but she said these words. She said, my father's goals are my goals. My father's goals are my goals. You'd expect a father and daughter to be fighting like cats and dogs. He's your trainer? Like, how fun is that when you're 16? She said, my father's goals are my goals. We're working toward the same thing. Get the gold. And she was just like freed. That's how it is for you. I just don't really care. My father's goals are my goals. That's not, you, you don't like my goals? That's cool. My father's goals are my goals. I'm freed from other appraisals. Another way it frees you. That judgment to come, I think I care about this a lot as a pastor. It keeps you out of some tempting snares. It frees you from some tempting snares. Do you know it is good to have guardrails? It's healthy to have some fear. It's healthy in your life to have some lines you just will not cross. Oh, you're so repressed. I'm not repressed. I love God. I love him. I don't want to displease him. I'm not repressed when there are certain things that I feel like a shock of ice go through my veins when I realize how easy it would be to make a very simple, pleasurable decision and utterly crush my wife. 
and I fear it. And I live with this thing in my belly all the time of, there are certain places you don't go, there are certain lines you don't cross, there's no conversation about this. Because the fear of God keeps me up at night. How easily I could wander. And I'm thankful for it. I'm thankful for those moments in the dark when it's easy to surrender to my own sin where all of a sudden I have the reality, I'm going to answer to God. I'm going to answer to God. Sometimes I want things that would ruin me. Sometimes I want things that would ruin other people. Sometimes I want things that would shame the name of God. And his judgment holds me in check. That's a good fear. It's a healthy fear. You know, people mock Christian sexuality. They just mock, you know, all the fear about the Mike Pence rule. And just mock these various and sundry opinions about or caricatures of Christian sexuality. You know what I'm finding as the 21st century unfolds? Christian sexuality is astonishingly good at protecting people. It's astonishingly good when it's actually put into practice at allowing for non-exploitative love. I'm getting less and less defensive about this as a Christian. As I read atrocity after atrocity after atrocity flowing out of the so-called sexual liberation movement. Give me plain old-fashioned faithfulness to what God has called us to and created us for because it's healthy. It protects children. It protects women. It... Free. Last thing, it doesn't just free you from other appraisals, it doesn't just keep you out of tempting snares. It frees you because it gives you a purpose and it helps you get there. It gives you a purpose and it helps you get there. Here's what I mean. You and I were saved. Why? We're saved to become a restored human like Jesus. And that's what you're going to be judged on. You're going to be judged on the last day by your father and your elder brother Jesus on whether you are becoming more like him. That's the purpose. That's how you win the prize. You know what I'm finding about... If, if you know how to win the prize, that helps you know how to play. It actually frees you to know how to play. So inspired by the Queen's Gambit, I've been recently working on improving my chess game. It's kind of a you know, slow, dismal business, but I'm working on it. And what I found is, as I'm taking all these chess tutorials, is I'm constantly being judged. Incorrect move. Nope. Are you an idiot? <laughs> Check. Oh, that's just so repressive. It's so destructive. No, those judgments are helping open up my game. Because I know more and more how to win. Now I know how to play. And that's the judgment. You're supposed to be like Jesus. You're going to be judged on being like Jesus. That's how you win the prize. So that helps you know how to play. And it opens up your game. If my purpose is to be like Jesus and to rule and reign with Jesus, I mean, that's just, well, then that just opens up my life. It frees me to get busy doing what will enable me to win the prize. That's liberating. His judgment is necessary, it's satisfied, and it's liberating for us who know Jesus. Last thing, you know, I've titled this series Knowing the Times. Knowing the Times. And I'll just say this. If that judgment is not real and it's not coming, if that is not the end of all things, if you and I are not on the road to that right now, I'll go so far as to say, and there's really nothing about our times to understand. Stuff's just happening. You should aim to avoid whatever misery you can, and you should pray into the void that you're one of the lucky ones whatever that even means. That's all you got. 
But thank God that is not the life of God's children. Whatever times we find ourselves in, no matter how chaotic and unsettled and troubling and bewildering, that judgment is coming. And so the road, though sometimes narrow, there's a certain straightness to it. And there's a lot of freedom in it. And there's deep comfort in it because God has been merciful and he will never stop being merciful. And we know that really in the end, it is that judgment that makes it possible to do some good in this world along the way. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, bless these things, not just to our understanding, but to our daily lives. In Jesus we pray. Amen.